So over the past decade, uh, there has been a glut of research on this one question. How do people mature spiritually? Like what are the factors, the sermons, the programs, the environments in which people, church people, evangelical Christians actually grow spiritually? They produce spiritual fruit. What, what, what is it that makes some people serve sacrificially and, and make worship into a way of life and take their prayers that they hear at church and bring that with them into every conversation they have throughout the week? What makes some people grow in compassion and passion and fire for the Lord? What makes some people become more and more like Christ? This, this is a great question. And, and today, thankfully, we do have this, we're at this point where, where we have researchers who actually look into these things and we have this, this amazing treasure trove. One of, the, one of the big ahas of all of this millions and millions of dollars spent on research is this. That there's a spiritual continuum. That if you ask, oh, 350,000 evangelicals in America, which they did, you ask them what makes them grow spiritually, you will find that within every church in America, there are four basic categories of people. There are four stages of spiritual growth. That in this room right now, people are generally in one of these four categories. Now, this, this might seem like an oversimplification, but this, this gives us a crucial detail about spiritual growth. It's that people in different stages need different things to grow. So if you are exploring Christianity, you have different needs than if you are growing in Christ, than if you are close to Christ, than if you are Christ-centered. So you expect different things at those different stages. Different programs, different environments, different factors are going to help people at different stages. And you already know this, right? Like this, is, this, this just makes sense to you. Like, like your one-year-old is going to have different needs than your 15-year-old, than a 30-year-old, than a 50-year-old, than a 90-year-old, Right? At different stages of our lives, we need different things to thrive. So, this isn't good or bad. This just is. You know, when I come home and I see my son struggling to pedal his bicycle, I don't look at him and say, Come on! Everybody can ride a bike. I can ride a bike. Mom can ride a bike. I can train a monkey to ride a bike. I don't do that. You know why? Because he's four. And the fact that you can't ride a bike right now, that's okay. So what do I do? I help him. I talk him through it. I say, you got to push with this leg and then this leg. you got to lean into it. And that's okay. But now, let's say we wait 12 years, 10 years. If he still can't pedal a bike, then something's not right. Something would be wrong. So the other big thing that was found in the research is this, that the American church is full of people, millions of people who are stuck in what they call spiritual adolescence. That within our churches across America, if you survey evangelicals, you will find that there are people who have been, they've heard thousands of worship songs. 
They've listened to hundreds, if not thousands of sermons. They've joined dozens of small groups. And yet, for some reason, that's not turning into spiritual growth. For some reason, they're not thriving. For some reason, they're not growing. They come to a certain place where they grow in their spiritual walk, and then they stop. They stall. They never become who God is calling them to be. You never see them turn the corner from consuming spiritual goods to actually participating, to actually giving back, to actually contributing. They are the spiritual equivalent of a 35-year-old college grad who lives in his parents' basement, plays Xbox all day while he sits in his boxers and eats Doritos. And what do you say to that man? You slap him in the back of the head and say, shave, put on some pants, and get a job. Right? Right. Now, what I'm saying, that we have trouble maturing spiritually, this is not something particularly new or American. If you read through the scriptures, you'll find that the author of Hebrews, the Apostle Paul, will both say, you should be eating steaks by now. Why am I warming up a bottle of milk for you? You're big babies. Come on. Like, this is a problem in Christianity since the beginning. But there is something new and particularly American about this. It's that while we are not growing, we are consuming record amounts of spiritual goods and services. That American evangelicalism is is a smorgasbord. Have Have you ever been to the Shady Maple? 200 feet of buffet. Over 500 dishes. Now that, that is American Christianity. That you can go to almost any town in America and you can say, oh, I like this children's program and I like this Bible study. Oh, and I like that sermon. And you can just, you can pile, load up your plate, take all these things. And then, and then if right now, if you're bored in the middle of my sermon, you whip out your iPad, you hop online and there are thousands of better sermons than the one I'm preaching right now that you should just pop in. There are, are hundreds of expert commentaries you could read for free. And we're consuming all of this. We're loading up our plate. I'll take some of that, some of that, some of that. And here's the thing. Smorgasbords are awesome. I love smorgasbords. This is great. This is not a problem. This is a good thing. But the problem is, is that somehow we're eating and eating and eating. And it's not being translated into growth, into maturity. Somehow we're never growing up. And that's a problem. If the research is right, then millions, millions have stopped growing. That the high point in their spiritual life was sometime in the past. That they haven't grown in the last year and they don't expect to grow in the next year. That they just trudge along. That they will never follow God and to take a step of faith. They will never do that. They, They will never share their faith. They will never become who God is calling them to be. Never. Unless. Unless. Jesus comes into their life, digs it up, piles on a bunch of manure. Today, Jesus is going to do just that. He's going to tell us a story about a gardener, about a fruitless fig tree, and about a big pile of steaming manure. Be encouraged. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Okay, before we get to the big pile of manure, here's what we need to do. We need to, we need to go on a little walk. 
Jesus is going on a walk. He's, he started up in, in Galilee. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Starts in Galilee. He's headed towards Jerusalem. And he's, gonna, he's walking from Galilee, which is his hometown, his home base region. He's walking down to Jerusalem geographically, but up to Jerusalem elevation-wise. He's going up to Jerusalem where he's going to face death. He's going to suffer, be rejected, tortured, executed. But along that road, it's a long road, he's walking through Samaria and he's telling stories. He's, he's taking us along with him. He's getting stopped along the road. And when, when he's quite a ways into the trip, we're now chapter 13, some men come up to him. They rush up to him with some urgent news, fresh out of Jerusalem. Listen to this. They say, there, there were some present, like they, they showed up, they're just now here, that at that time, who told him about the Galileans, these are Jesus' hometown boys, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. It's Jesus. Did you hear the news? Did you hear what just happened in Jerusalem? That our brothers, our Galilean brothers, they went down to Jerusalem to do what holy men of God do, and that's offer sacrifices to our God. And you know what Pilate, that Roman official did? Do you know what he did? In the middle of worship, he sent soldiers in and had them cut down, that they were bled out right along with the sheep that were being sacrificed. That their blood was spilled. It, it, it's horrifying. This is, this is in the context. This is like us being in the middle of communion. And men come in here and just shoot us all down. And our blood is spilled right alongside with the blood of Christ. It's horrible. It's unthinkable. But if you've read history from this time, you know that, yeah, sounds about right. Pilate was a brilliant Roman politician. He was called the prefect of Palestine. We know that. We found this ancient inscription. And his role was to somehow maintain Roman control and get Roman taxes out of this vast area of people who dearly hated him. So what do you do? If you are in charge now, Rome puts you in charge of this, this vast area where people hate you. There's fighting all the time. What do you do? Well, you use fear. You make it perfectly clear that any rebellion, any form of protest will be met with the most horrific consequences. And that's exactly what he does. Just a few years before, uh, he was working on a water project in Jerusalem. There's a wall. Jesus is going to mention this in a minute. It's the Pool of Siloam, this reservoir. He was working on a water project there. And, and the Jews hated it. And they started protesting. So you know what? Pilate, he's just brilliant. He's like, you want to protest here? Come on into my courtyard and let me hear your complaints. And while the crowd of protesters comes into his courtyard, he sends out his soldiers dressed in street clothes with daggers underneath their clothes. He has them surrounded. And then he steps out on his balcony. Come, let me hear your complaint. And when he does that, he gives this signal and all the soldiers pull out their daggers and stab all the protesters to death. That's how Pilate rules. That's how Rome rules. And so this, in some ways this is par for the course, but, but even for Pilate, to kill men in the middle of worship is crossing a line. And so when they come up and when they say this to Jesus, this isn't just a news report. This is a question. You, you claim to be a religious leader. You claim to speak for God. Tell me. Why, Jesus? Why did this have to happen? These were good men who came to worship our Lord. And an evil man 
spilled their blood in the middle of it? It's a question that most of us have asked Jesus when tragedy strikes. So terrorists load into a giant airplane one September morning. They hijack it, run it into a giant skyscraper, and thousands die. And what do we ask? We ask, why? Jesus, why? December 14th, 2012. School day just started at 9.35 a.m. Door gets busted in. A man comes in and guns down six teachers and 20 elementary children at Sandy Hook. Children. And we say, why Jesus? Just months later, there's a celebration at the end of the Boston Marathon and a man comes by and sets down a backpack. Three dead, 264 maimed. Evil men are doing evil things. And we ask why. We ask the exact same question that these men asked very long time ago. But there's one major difference. Watch this. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Now this question doesn't even make sense to us. Because in our day, when we ask why Jesus, we have one set of assumptions. We assume that this is God's problem. We assume that this is God's fault. God, you have the power to stop evil men. Why didn't you? But they, they had exactly the opposite assumption. Now, notice this here. The popular belief of Jesus' day was that it was the victim's fault. So we ask, God, why didn't you do that? But but they ask, God, did these men deserve it? Because, you know, they believed bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. But Jesus, he's going to have none of that. Look at this. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he's going to give us another example in verse 4. He says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. He says, do you remember that construction accident that happened? I mean, it's just an act of God. It's a tower. Scholars think it was actually a scaffolding system next to the tower. Something happened and 18 people dead. Jesus asked, do you think that they were worse offenders than all those others who lived in Jerusalem? No. No, I tell you. That's not the way God runs things. Now, here's, before we, um, before we, we separate ourselves too much from, from these people asking this question, from the fact that some people think that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people, we, there are still people like that today. And there's some truth to this. So let's not move over this too quickly. It's true that when you sin, you often suffer. So when you cheat on your taxes, you might go to jail. When you get drunk and drive, you might run into a tree, end up in the hospital, get your license taken away. When you're a selfish, pompous person, your spouse might leave you. That when you sin... There are often consequences, often suffering. That is true. But you know what's also true? 
that a good man, a, a godly man, a, a good husband, a father, a daddy, can get up in the morning, have breakfast, drink his cup of coffee, kiss his wife, hug his little girl, wrestle his little boy, just like any other day. He push through traffic just like any other day, and he can go to his office and sit there and take the first phone call, and an airplane full of terrorists can run into that, and he can be gone. You know, it's also true that a good woman, a mother, a godly woman can be a teacher. You just show up to teach the children that day and a gunman can come in and gun her down. No, I tell you. The Bible is full of great men and women who suffer greatly. In fact, if anything, you could take it the other side. It seems like good people suffer. I mean, you take Job. The brother lost everything. Joseph was in prison for years, wrongly. Ruth lost all the men in her life. Go through the laundry. Stephen was stoned. Lazarus, the brother, had to die twice. Come on! The Apostle Paul was beaten and, and stoned and left for dead. How many times? And Jesus... Was he a good man? Did he suffer? I mean, if anything, you can take it to the other side and say, good men and women suffer. No, I tell you. Great men and women of God will often suffer. And some of you right now, some of you need to hear this. Some of you, your life stinks. And things have gone horribly wrong. And when you're suffering, Satan whispers in your ears, you deserve this. You're a sinner. This is your fault. And Jesus says, no, I tell you. That's a lie. But the whole truth is this. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, here's a good question. What does that possibly mean? Because Jesus can't mean that we're all going to die in a massacre or have a tower fall on us, can he? I mean, this is obvious. He can't mean that. So what does he mean that we will all likewise perish? Jesus seems to think that all of us, no matter how long we live, just like those poor folks could be surprised by death. That we might live 80 90, even 100 years, and be totally surprised by death. Now, is this so hard to believe? For you 20-year-olds, yes, it is. But if you've lived a little longer, I tell you what, I, I went to bed last night, and I promise you, I was, a, I was still in college. And then I woke up this morning, and, and look, it's 14 years later, and I'm a father and a pastor. Like, what happened? I mean, we've all had this, right? Like, uh, I had a conversation recently. There was, um, you know, we have some new college students coming. So I'm sitting there talking to college students. And, you know, I want to be cool and with it. I'm hip. So I'm, I'm getting ready to, to throw in a quote from, from a movie line. You know, that's what all those kids do. So I, I get ready to, to quote my line. And then, you know what the movie this was? Don't judge me. Dumb and Dumber. The great Dumb and Dumber. And right before I said it, I looked at them and realized, you weren't born in 1994, were you? (laughs) Like, 
What happened? 20 years just passed. I was watching Dumb and Dumber just like yesterday. I was sitting there snorting. I was laughing so hard in the movie theater. And now, 20 years. This year, big hallmark of the Anderson household, my little girl goes to kindergarten. And you know what most of you told me? Blink of an eye, taking her to kindergarten. Next day, she'll be graduating. I get it. A lot of you have lived this. That if you don't pay attention, you will be surprised by life. And if we're surprised by everything else, if we're surprised by the passing of time over movies and graduation and and these big markers of life, do you think we might just possibly go through all of our lives and be surprised by death? Is it possible that we could live 70, 80, 90, even 100 years and be lying there gasping on our bed and say, what happened? See, the great danger, Jesus says, is not an evil man like Pilate coming to kill you. The great danger is not a tower falling on you. It is not a terrorist coming in and and smashing into your building. It's not even a gunman coming in here and gunning us all down right now. The great danger that we will waste the life that we have right now and be surprised by death. And that, Jesus says, is an unthinkable tragedy. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus did. We just came to him. We said, Jesus, what about those guys? Why, Jesus? What about that over there? And you know what Jesus does? This is what Jesus always does. He says, I don't want to talk about those guys. I want to talk about you. The question is not, why did they die? The question is, how are you living? And then one of the greatest, like, like where did that come from transitions of all time? He just starts telling the story. And he told this parable. Man had a fig tree, planted it in his vineyard, came seeking fruit on it, found none. And he said to the vine dresser, the gardener guy, look, for three years now I've been seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none, cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answers him, sir, aphes, literally in Greek, let it alone this year also. Wait until I dig around it and put on manure. Literally throw on manure. Love the image. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now some of you have been in church a long time and you know that there are hidden depths in this passage. You know that the fig tree is a symbol of ancient Israel and it's littered throughout the scriptures. You know that it's a picture of messianic blessing to sit under your fig tree. You know that, that, that there are images of the three years is almost certainly symbolic of something. You know that chopping down of a tree is an image used throughout scriptures of God's judgment. But, but, but can, can we set that aside just for a minute? Whatever you know about this passage, let's just not miss the obvious. Let's just hear the story. It's just a story about a guy who owns a vineyard and would really like some figs. Now, you and I, we don't really get that. We don't really make that connection. But figs were to Galileans what pizza is to people from Phoenixville. I don't know if you know this, but we have 16,000 inhabitants of Phoenixville, the borough of Phoenixville, and we have 16 pizzerias. Now that, my friends, is impressive. If you take pizza out of Phoenixville, you will no longer have Phoenixville. And it's the same idea with Galilee. 
You take figs out of Galilee and you will no longer have Galileans. So this guy, he's a Galilean. He wants some figs. So he has a fig tree planted and he waits patiently. Like it takes years for this to grow and he lets it grow. He lets it grow. It becomes a nice big tree. He lets it grow. And finally he comes to that time. And in Leviticus it actually gives you a specific timeline of when you can actually come to the fig tree and take its fruit. So he does. He comes to the fig tree after years of patience and he looks for figs. And what does he find? There's no figs. Okay. We'll wait another year. Comes back. It's growing. It's sucking up nutrients. It's growing. It's part of his vineyard. It's, it's sh- taking out the sunlight from his vines comes back no figs okay let's wait another year he comes back there's no figs now this guy this grandma anderson used to say he's madder than a wet hen no idea what that means but it sounds mad so this guy he's just like chop it down that thing is sucking up nutrients i could be having great vineyard right now but right now i have a figless fig tree Chop it to the ground. And that is exactly what this fig tree needs, right? That's what it deserves. It is a useless fig tree. It does nothing but suck away the nutrients. What's the gardener say? He says, let it alone. Like, I know that this fig tree is a useless consumer sitting around in boxers playing Xbox. But wait. Like, just give it some time. Like, see, one more year. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to dig in. I'm going to dig out the ground around it and I'm going to dump, throw piles of steaming manure on it. I'm going to give it something that it could never find on its own. But the result, maybe, just maybe, that fig tree that's never bloomed before will bloom. Maybe there's hope for that fig tree. Now there may or may not be hidden mysteries, depths of parallels from scripture in this parable but let's not miss the obvious christians believers are fig trees planted in the vineyard of the lord we are fig trees if you are a believer in jesus christ if you claim that for yourself you are a fig tree planted in the vineyard of the lord and just like that master expected the fig tree to produce figs god expects us Christians to produce Christ-like behavior. Now let's be clear. The scriptures are perfectly clear. We are saved by grace alone. What what gets you planted in that vineyard has nothing to do with your works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, not of works. It is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So it is a gift from God. But, but, but when you're planted in there, there are certain expectations. You're planted there for a purpose. Ephesians 2.10, the very next verse says, For we are God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Like the reason he's planted you here is to produce a bounty To fill his world with love and compassion and joy and peace and hope and worship. To reflect his attributes to him. That the whole world, that thy kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That this earth filled with us will reflect the fruit of God. If a believer truly sinks his roots 
into the grace and the goodness and, and his, into his people, into his word, naturally, that believer should produce good fruit. Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That type of stuff. But what happens if you plant a fig tree and it grows and grows and grows and never produces figs? What happens if, if you plant a Christian in a church, in a people, and, and it grows, it keeps, keeps growing, keeps taking in new stuff, keeps hearing sermon after sermon, and never starts translating that into love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. What, what if they sing worship song after worship song and never bring worship into their daily lives? Like, never spontaneously worship God throughout the week. Never. It's only an act that happens going through the motions on Sunday. What if they listen to podcast after podcast hear the promises of God and his forgiveness over and over and over and over again and never share their faith with anyone and never show the forgiveness of God to anyone. Well, justice, justice demands this. Cut it out. Like that tree does not deserve what it's receiving it's a bad investment. That tree needs to be rooted out, torn out, because, because it should, we should make room so that others can enjoy the benefits. That's what justice cries out. But what does the love of God cry out? Aphes. Let it alone. I, I'm not going to give this tree what it deserves. I'm going to give this tree something that it needs. It needs something that it cannot find on its own. It needs to have someone dig into it. It needs to have the gardener come dig up around it. It needs to, it needs to find nutrients that it will never find on its own. It needs manure. Jesus' way of helping us, you and me, in the vineyard of the Lord, come to maturity is Manure. Now, I don't want you to miss this because Jesus could have said a lot of different things. In fact, they actually have, like, you know, books on, on how to take care of fig trees from back that time. And there were lots of other ways to produce figs. He could have said by pruning. He could have said by adding more water. He could have said by adding fresh soil. But he didn't. He chose manure. Manure is, this, is, this word only occurs this one time in all of the scriptures. You know why? Because nice people didn't say this word. And somebody should have told Jesus. This was not a nice word. This is the type of word where you hear it and it just it has the same reaction as when you, you step in dog do with your flip-flops. You're like. <laughs> Let's make the connection here. Some guys come up and stop Jesus and tell him this awful, horrible, unthinkable thing happened. Why does God allow suffering? Is God judging people? And Jesus stops and says, let me tell you, sometimes God's grace smells like manure. So my, uh, my old roommate in seminary, Tim, he, uh, he was a normal kid. Not a bad kid. He grew up in church. And um, it's not that he was bad. It's just, he, like most of us, he never had time for God. 
Never made time for God. Never thought about God. So he was just going on in life, like never growing in his faith, but never really doing anything too bad. He was just a kid doing normal kid things. And, and he had grown up and he was just living on his own and, and things were going basically fine. And then one day he's riding his dirt bike through town and he's, he's got it up to about 50 miles an hour and he jumps this hill and he smashes headfirst into a brick wall. And the unthinkable happened. His, his face was completely smashed. The first people who came up on the scene of the accident actually thought that he had lost an eyeball because this part of his skull was down over his eye. His shoulder was permanently kind of like this. And it was horrible. And I'm sure there were a lot of people saying, why, Jesus? He's a good kid. Why? But you know what happened? While that good kid was sitting in the hospital, he decided to pick up a Bible. And while he's suffering greatly for the first time in his life, he started reading the scriptures and it cut him to the heart. And he read Romans and he reread Romans and he reread the book of Romans. And during that time, God dug into his life in a way that he never would have. If he hadn't experienced that horrible tragedy. Here's the thing. I don't think that Tim's story is unique. In fact, I know that it's not. I've asked many of you, when's the time when you've grown most spiritually? When's the time when God's had your greatest attention? When you see yourself growing the most? When you say, yes, I was connected to God. I was growing. I was bearing fruit the most in my life. You know when it is. Cancer, pain, loss, depression, hardship, manure. Yeah. When life stinks, when suffering is the greatest, and when the unthinkable happens, that's when we experience the hands of the gardener digging into our lives and saying, no, no, I haven't given up on this one yet. We just need some manure. Like I know it's going to be unpleasant. And I know it's going to stink. And I know it's going to feel awful. But I haven't given up on this one yet. So we're crying out why Jesus. But what if the answer is not that Jesus is judging you for sin in your life. What if the suffering in your life is actually God's grace. Justice cries out against us. Cut him down. Cut her down. You don't deserve it. You deserve to be cut out. You don't deserve a place among God's people. You don't deserve this. And you know what? It's true. It's horribly true. All of us. There are times in our lives where we do not. Our lives aren't bearing any fruit. Where if you looked at us, you'd say, you're no different than your neighbors. But we have one who speaks on our behalf. Says, Aphes, let him alone. Let her alone. I'm not done with this one yet. So, just a few days after Jesus would speak these words, um, he would finally make it to Jerusalem, and that's where he would be rejected, falsely accused, beat, spat upon, suffer, and then finally. He stood before a crowd. 
And you can hear this even in English. There's this chant that the crowd says. Do you know what it was? Crucify him. Crucify him. It, it has the exact same echo in English and in Greek of the words, cut it down. Cut it down. And there in the midst of this horrific suffering, when he's finally nailed to a cross, do you know what he says? He says, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Aphes. Let them alone. They know not what they've done. And there on that tree, our Lord was cut down so that we could live. So that we could have a chance. So that we could bear fruit. So that we could experience his life. He was cut to the ground. He suffered so that we could taste the sweetness of his life. You and I can never earn that. But we can live in response to it. And that's the gospel. You can't earn it. But you can live in response to it. And when you do, when you accept it, when you sink your roots into what he did for us, that's when you bloom. So whether life feels like a smorgasbord or like a manure pile for you, you can live today in response to the grace of God. You and I can live in such a way that we will not be surprised by death. But we will greet it joyfully knowing that to be absent from the body is to be present with the one who was cut down for us. Pray with me.